Um, Good evening, everyone. Um, Today's Bible reading comes from James chapter 4. It's the whole thing, so starting at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill, you covenant. But you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask, God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he is, that he is jealously longing for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you who are you to judge your neighbor. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to to this or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money, Why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your own arrogance, arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good, they ought to do and doesn't do it. It is sin for them. All right, so you're all better now. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear it. Uh, give us courage to listen to it. We pray it will build us up as your people and may serve you and glorify you. Amen. Recently I found a photo of uh, my youth group um, when I was in youth. And I'm going to put it on the screen. This works. Fiona can put it on the screen for me. There it is. And uh, um, that's taken many years ago. And I warmed my heart to see faces I hadn't seen in a long, long time. I don't know if you can see me there, maybe. Uh, pick me out in the crowd. And yet, when I look at it, it also brings sadness because I look at that picture and I realize that almost all of them are no longer Christians. I think about five, as far as I know, uh, are still following. That includes myself. And that's pretty sad, isn't it? Most of them left the faith straight after school, 
They finished high school. We lived in Gympie, and so we had to travel to Brisbane or somewhere else to study, and most of them lost their faith in that transition. But I'll tell you about a story about one of those guys, and he's actually on, in the picture there. And he moved to Brisbane, and we were really close, and he joined my church, my Salvation Army church I was part of, a little tiny church plant. And it was actually a foundational period for him. He, he grew deeply in his faith. And the Salvation Army, if you become a member, like we have membership in our church, part of that membership, uh, well, it's for life, and partly, part of that membership is you choose not to drink alcohol ever again or smoke cigarettes, uh, part of the Salvation Army's hope to reach those who are alcoholic or, or on the streets. And he did that in his university years, the years that classically filled with drinking. He swore off alcohol and became a Salvation Army soldier. And it was pretty awesome. I then married Emma and, and, and moved away, and I kind of followed him afar, from afar. And he'd finished his degree and decided he wanted to go on to do academic study. It was his dream. His passion was to do academic study. So he went off to Adelaide to do a master's. And when he got to Adelaide, he just couldn't find a church he liked. And he was very, very focused on his studies too, but, you know, churches didn't have the right theology or the right community or enough social justice themed or music wasn't good enough. And, and like a true Protestant, he thought about splitting and starting his own denomination. Um, but in the end, he just didn't go to church. And uh, he didn't go to church at all in his period in Adelaide, and he moved back to Brisbane didn't go to church there either. And the, for me, it's really sad, but also it's sad because he, he married a very strong Christian girl in this time, and uh, recently when I caught up with them, they realized they're both not going to church anymore. In many ways, it's not a very dramatic story, is it? It's a very normal story, kind of story that fills our lives, but it's only not dramatic from our perspective. From a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective, it's a pretty dramatic story, isn't it? There was once a man walking in the kingdom of light who chose to take his wife and walk in the kingdom of darkness and to face judgment of God for eternity again. That's a pretty dramatic story. And it's a pretty common story. And here's some stats to show you how common this pattern is, this falling away. Here's the first one. This is an American study from 2019, I think. 23-year-olds uh, to 30-year-olds, and reasons why they don't go to church anymore. And number one, I moved to college and stopped attending church, 34%. Uh, you could pick multiple things, hence the reasons adds up more than 100 there two, three, and four other reasons. But number five is interesting too. My work responsibilities prevent, prevent me from attending. So 34% and 24% either prioritized moving and never found a church or prioritized work and never um, got back to church. The next slide is an Australian study. Uh, this one's done more recently and it looks at major denominations in our country and when people lost their faith. Let's um, pick the big ones, I guess. The Anglican Church, uh, Baptist, Presbyterian, uniting. They're kind of probably the biggest population-wise. And you see that, big numbers, right? 37% of the uniting church teenagers lost their faith when they left school. I'm 33 Anglican, Presbyterian, 29. Left home was worse. When you left home, what happened? Well, for Anglicans, 43% left their faith. United Church is 45. I mean, none of those numbers are great. It shows you it's a dangerous period, isn't it? This transitional period Kinman is a researcher into this exact field, and he says this. The period of 18 to 29 is a time of big transitions for most young people. It's a time of completing their initial training and starting a career. It's a time of creating relationships and, for many, finding a, a partner who they share their lives with. It is a time where many will move from their homes to have their own place. On one hand, it's a critical time for making choices that will direct your life as an adult at the same time the very mobility of these people means there's an issue relating and connecting to church. 
the ages 18 to 29, are the black hole of church attendance. It's a sad thing to hear, isn't it? Who is aged 18 to 29? Put your hands up. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord that he would bless our church with so many people, that that wouldn't be true for us. But it's not just people who are living home for the first time who, who struggle. Actually, truth is, Andrew and I's observation, and I think truth and stats, is that people, when they change cities, struggle to connect to churches. Well, people come through our door, are oh, you new? Yes, new church. Oh, wonderful. That's great. First week, yes. How long have you been in Cairns for? Two years. <laughs> in two years, 18 months, they've struggled to find church, get back in the rhythm of church. That's why our third vision statement is we want to be prayerfully sending. We live in a transient city. We have a transient congregation, but that doesn't mean that we have to fall away. Instead, when people leave us, we want them to do it prayerfully. And we think about that, and we look at when the chapter, chapter 4 of the book of James, and we're going to do the, most of it. We're not doing a little bit of it, but we're going to do most of it, because I think actually in this chapter, we see the core issues as to why we so often see people falling away. And I have a service sheet there, and you can... Um, Take out your pens and take notes if you'd like to as we, uh, as we get into it. First point is wrong motives and their damaging impact. James 4, uh, verses 1 to 6, but we're just going to take a few verses at a time. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire and do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Uh, exaggerated sort of words, aren't they? I mean, it sounds like a very bloody church with this killing and fighting and battling, but really just reflects how numb we are to conflict. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live for eternity together before they created the world and never fought once. And we fight all the time. Jesus, when he talks about the sixth commandment, do not murder, he says, if you call someone an idiot or curse them or call them a fool, you, you've murdered them in your heart. And so here we see the violence of conflict. And what, what, what causes this conflict? Well, it's coveting. What is coveting? Coveting is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. We'd use the word envy. And when we're envious of something, it, it means that we, we want it, but it's not ours to have. And so here we see a church, like most churches probably, full of people wanting things that they don't actually have yet. And it fills up your heart, this envy, and it bubbles up and it overflows in bitterness and gossip and slander and aggre- passive aggression or outright harsh words. And I think you've got to pause and ask, are you struggling with coveting, with envy? Does envy ever fill your lives? Maybe envy for someone who's married and you see their marriage, whether you're single or you're unhappy in your marriage. Envious of people with kids or careers that are going well. Envious of people with money or houses. Envious of people's popularity or influence. Envious of people's positions in our churches or in ministries. Envious of people who are far away from you, seem to be doing well overseas. Envious of those high schoolers, that you, friends you still keep track of on Facebook. I actually think envy drives a lot of our decision-making. Uh, we look around, we compare ourselves to others, we see what we're missing, and then we're driven to fill that gap. We often measure ourselves based on what's missing. Could it be that we're missing things simply because we don't ask? That's what James says. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
what is, what is long, what's the longing of your heart? What do you really want? Do you ever talk to God about it? Does it fill your prayer life? You may say, well, not anymore. I used to. I used to pray about it all the time, but then God never answered it, so I don't pray about that stuff anymore. I wonder why God didn't answer it. And the truth is, we don't really know. But James does make a suggestion for those who, in this church, who weren't getting answers. He says, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Our prayers are really just an extension of our sinful hearts. We, just, we want things, we're selfish, and that just is reflected in our prayer life. Because motives really matter, don't they? If my son Thomas comes to me and says, Dad, I want 100 bucks, I'd be taken back. But I'd probably say to him, what do you want it for? And if he said, I want to buy 2.25 kilos of Cadbury chocolate, that's not going to happen. But if he said, I want to give it towards the Ukraine appeal at our school, that will happen. Exact same request. Different motives. What do you want to do with it? Could it be that our motives in our prayer life are saturated with selfishness? I wonder if you wrote out your prayers for a week, wrote them out, and then someone else read them, what would they read like? Would they read like a shopping list or maybe some sort of vision board where you want to see yourself in five, ten years? Or would they actually read like a letter written to someone that you care about, that you have a relationship with? Danger is often our prayer lives are just exactly the, 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 pre, you know, the, the first thing I said. We're the shopping lists of things we want. My, one of my wife's heroes is Elizabeth Elliot, and she says this, prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. A sense in which when you pray, it's the, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me, let me be part of that. Let me be part of your vision for this world, God. Use me. And Corrie ten Boom, another a wonderful Christian uh, writer, she says, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? That's a clever way of phrasing it, isn't it? Is prayer your steering wheel? Like God drives you, he, he directs you, or is it your spare tire? It's your backup when things go wrong. Well, James just keeps drilling down, drilling down, down, down to these people and their hearts. He says this in verse 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy to God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? That's kind of jarring, isn't it? You know, if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy of God. If you're, en- if you're a friend of God, you've got to be an enemy of the world. I mean, how do we live with that? Like, that's a jarring phrase. What does that even mean? To be friends with the world or an enemy of the world? What do we do when we hit a passage like this where it doesn't, it just doesn't read easily? Well, one thing that's really helpful, I find, is you take the word that we're kind of, that's the key word here, the word, in our case, is world, friends of the world. And we go, well, has James used that word before? You know, we've jumped into this letter halfway through, but what is it? has that word come up? And when we go back in James, if you had time, you could flick back, and you get to James chapter 1, and we read this, James 1, 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So in James, we see the word world is 
all that drags you from God, that, that pollutes your life with sin or with rebellion or simply steals away the affection that was deserving of God. And so we've been saved out of that world. Don't go back to it. It's kind of like, you know, a husband you know, going for dinner with an ex-girlfriend. Not appropriate. Or uh, an ex-drug addict catching up for drinks with his, with his old dealer. It's not wise, is it? But we've got to live here. We have to live in this world. We're not going to just you know, lock the doors and have, a, have this kind of isolated community. We're going to be in the world. So what does it mean to be in the world but not kind of in love with the world? Here's an illustration. Um, Emma and I were married 14 years. That was last week. That was our anniversary. It was last week. 14 years we've been married, and she's promised to love me more than anyone else in this world. Obviously, she loves God more, but to love me most, and I love her the same. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that I lock her away so she can talk to her no other men? You know, she's banned from having friends, friendships with men. Of course not. She's, of course she can talk to other men. That's totally fine. But I never want to compete for her affections with a man. I never want to be second in her heart with another man. I never want to feel like I'm ignored because of another man. See, that's what it's like with God. Uh, we are free to be in this world. He created it. It's beautiful. It's good. We get to be here enjoying it. But he never wants to fight for your affection. He never wants to be second in the relationship. He never wants this world to capture more of your heart than him. I think that's what it looks like. We have to enjoy this world, but never at the cost of God. And I wonder if this is where we start to see some of those stats we saw earlier played out. When people, they desire things they don't have, Christians, and so they pursue them. And they pursue them with just complete friendship with the world. And they leave God behind. And their motives, their motives are filled with, with enjoying this world or, 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 or experiencing this world, but they do it at the cost of their relationship. Well, the good news is that God gives grace. That's what it says here in James, but he gives more grace. And we get into how to change our hearts if our hearts have run away with the world, how we change our hearts and kind of come back to God. My next point, right motives and repentance. We're in James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we see straight away, actually, this is a spiritual warfare. It's not just us. Uh, falling away when we transition. There's this definitely Satan taking advantage of those moments in our lives where we're weak and vulnerable and far from church. But the call is to submit yourself again to God. What does that mean? It means let him be the steering wheel again, you know, instead of being the spare tire. It means making the king that's enthroned in your heart. Well, how do we do that? And the truth is we do it, we, we start always with Repentance. Before we can resubmit our hearts, we must begin with repentance. I wonder when was the last time that you repented to God? Last year, uh, late last year sometime, um, to my shame, I got into an argument with Emma over the phone. 
It's kind of ironic, really. I was about to go into a partial care meeting with someone who really needed care. And in that moment, she called me and, you know, I just was all self-indulgent, self-righteous. My work is holier now. This time is important to me. And I said some harsh things. Um, and then, you know, I- I- ironic, yeah. Didn't care for her too well. But I felt terrible. I felt so, so, so regretted my words to her on the phone. And I felt so sorry about them. Then I went home hours later, hours later, and it was dinner time, and we had dinner with the kids, and everything seemed fine. And we, kids got showered, and I read them stories, and they went to bed, and everything was great. And I was like, this is good, you know? I know Emma loves me, and she forgives me. And then, like, I don't know, 9 o'clock at night, and I was like, so are we going to talk about this? Have you got something to say to me? And I had to repent. <laughs> because you, you should repent in those moments, right? But are we, like with, are we like that with God? Or do we sin and kind of feel so sorry, so wretched, and we think, oh, thank goodness God's a forgiving God, and we never stop to actually say sorry and repent. And we feel sorry, we just never say sorry. We just trust the relationship will move on like nothing ever happened. Because he's such a forgiving God. And yet to resubmit begins with repentance. To admit that you have hurt that relationship, no matter how forgiving they are. To say sorry. And I think here we get one of the most powerful, vivid descriptions of repentance in the entire Bible. Right here. Let me read it and then we're going to break it down. Verse 8. Go to your Bibles, read along and see all these, all these elements to it. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God, and he will lift you up. That's vivid, isn't it? Let me just go through it slowly. And the first part of this, this is kind of five things, I think, that go on here with repentance. The first one is going back to God. I mean, that's the beginning. It's to turn back. The prodigal son who decides to turn back to his father. Of course, what does the prodigal son find as he gets close to the house? His father runs to him. And so it's true for you too. You know, draw near to God. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. The second part is to seek to be cleansed by God from the stains of sin. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I mean, it's God alone who can, who can heal us and clean us and, and wash away our sin. So we go to him and ask him to do that. I think of David after he rapes Bathsheba and then he murders Uriah. He goes in Psalm 51 and he prays. And he says, wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. That's our second step. We, we come to God and we, we ask that he would wash us. The third one is an emotional, is an emotional response. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Repentance can't be mechanical, emotionless. It can't be like that. You think of, think of Peter when the rooster crows and he realizes he's denied Jesus three times. What happens? What does he do straight away? He goes outside and weeps bitterly over what he's done. I think of the, the sinful woman who comes to Jesus, crashes the Pharisee's dinner party, comes to him, takes her alabaster jar, anoints him, and then what does she do over his feet? She weeps. She, he, she washes his feet with her tears. Repentance comes with an emotional feeling. 
And that's why so much of the time we find the Bible, things like sackcloth or ashes or lying on the ground or kneeling before God or bowing down as we repent. The fourth thing is to change your attitude to sin. And we should hate sin, shouldn't we? But instead of killing it, we often feed it. Instead of loathing it, we love it and long for it. Instead of destroying it, we desire it. And the quickest way to lose the wonder of the gospel is to lose sight of how bad our sin is. Because when sin doesn't look that bad, Jesus doesn't look that great. And so we need to change our attitude to sin. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And pray the prayer, God, show me how hard my sin is before you, that I might understand. And the fifth one is to humble yourself before God. To recognize his greatness and take a low position with, with the wonderful invitation that if you humble yourself before God, what will he do? He won't leave you groveling. He will lift you up. So ultimately, repentance is an invitation to come near to God so he draws near to you. To be, be, make yourself low that he would pick you up. To weep only to have your father dry your, your tears. And so, so Father James, we've, we've seen, we've gone from kind of envy and friendship with the world uh, through repentance to submission before God. You know, submit yourself to God. And now we come to planning for the future. We're going to skip down until we find verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Let's pause. That sounds like us, right? I mean, doesn't, doesn't that sound like an Australian, Australian young adult, uni student? It just sounds like them. Let's make plans. Let's decide on cities to travel to. Let's set up some timelines. Let's work on my career, set some goals, make some money. It sounds like stuff we do all the time. Verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist. It appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if this is the Lord's will, we will live or do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and such boasting is evil. It's kind of a blunt reminder, isn't it? We, we live in this bubble. We live in this little tiny bubble called the present. That's it. We have a very vague idea of what happens in the future, but not much. And we have a fading memory of the past. And we exist in a bubble. Truth is, we really don't know what happens tomorrow or the, or the week in the future. You know, those five-year plans, whatever you're sharing with the person sitting next to you, who knows if that'll happen? Only God. But what's the problem here? Is the problem that we're not meant to plan? No. Or travel? No. Or have career or money? No. The problem is the complete, utter lack of God in the first one. No mention of God. It's simply the application of all the arrogant, prideful, selfish sentiment that James has been waging war on through this chapter, played out. I will make my plans to further my life in this world, and God is my spare tire. A life that's focused on friendship with the world. Is it any surprise that people who plan without God often fall away from God. That plans made without God tend to lead us away from God. And my hope is that we will be a church that plans prayerfully. I would love to have you all here in the next five years. I would love you to never leave me. But more than that, I would love you to plan your futures prayerfully. 
soaked in prayer. That we'd be a prayerfully sending church. That God would be the centre of our hearts. Friendship with him would be the most important thing in our lives. That we'd prefer to build a relationship with him than build a career or comforts. And so, what does it mean to live a life full of, of um, prayer rather than kind of presumption? Well, I've got two applications. One for those who are living here and one for those who are planning to move. The first one for those who are living here. Um, I want to say to you, commit to Cairns while you're here without envy. Don't be, don't be constantly comparing yourself to other people, living other lives in other places, wondering if that's where you should be. If God has placed you here in this city, while you're here, put your feet down. Serve him wholeheartedly in the context that he's given you. For he has promised to prepare good works in advance for us to do. And no doubt there are some of them that you need to do right here that you're going to miss if you live your life wondering if you should be somewhere else. If God is going to call you to somewhere else, he will. But while you're here, be here. Be present. Be committed to serving him. Live contentedly for him, knowing that in time, if he wants you to move, you will. But until then, you'll be content in where he's placed you. What about for those who are already planning on leaving? You've got things that are drawing you away. Well, here are six things to think about as you plan to leave that I think are helpful. Six. Uh, They're not mine, but I think they're really helpful. The first one is this, and these are questions to ask yourself. Is my main goal to glorify God? That's a sobering question, isn't it? Uh, because often we forget that in amongst all the emotions of planning our futures. But 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So, is your move, are your plans all about glorifying God? Number two, how will, it move, how will the move impact my ability to care for my family? 1 Timothy 5.8 leaves not much room for neglecting your own family. Uh, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially his own household, he's, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There is a logical, practical element of moving. Can you pay the bills to keep your family going? Can you look after your family? Three, will you be able to connect to a church? Hebrews 10.25 says that Christians should not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, is there a church? Do you know of a church that you could plug into straight away when you land there? I'd love to help you. You come talk to me and I'll I'll reach out through my connections and see if I know of a church. I'll help you find a church. Be already thinking through, can I be spiritually nurtured in this new place? Number four, will this move help me be an, an ambassador for Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, um, that, that you are meant to be an ambassador of Christ, God making his appeal through us to the world. So the question is, are you doing a better job of that in this context? Do you have more influence in your current context or you have more influence in the future context? Think that through. Where, where will you be a better ambassador? Number five, and the one that people hate the most probably, is uh, seeking godly counsel. Proverbs 15.22 Without counsel, plans fail, but with advisors, they succeed. Why do people not want to seek counsel? Because they've already made their mind. <laughs> They're already going. They're definitely going. And they want to ask anyone, God, you know, a Christian friend, do you think I should go? Because they may say, no, I don't think you should go. I think you should stay. And then they have to change their plans. So you tend to find out on the night they're leaving church, 
This is my last Sunday, Peter. Oh, that's good. I'll pray for you. It's hard. So talk to someone. Don't do me. Talk to someone in your Bible study. Find someone and talk to them. And lastly, have you prayerfully searched Scripture and thought about this decision? Have you done it with the Bible open? Here are my six steps. Let's be prayerfully sending. Now, last thing I want to say is, this is hard. Like, who's been here, you know, five years or longer? It's tough, right? Seeing people leave. I think one of the hardest things I found in this church was to, to realize I would invest in people, love, care, and equip them, only for them to leave and for me not to be bitter about that. And it is still hard, but I've actually grown to see a deep joy in seeing people equipped for a season in our church fellowship, only to be sent by God to other places to take the gospel there, plug into churches, you know, connect into networks and build God's kingdom in other places. And I don't need to feel defensive about that. I have great joy in seeing people prayerfully sent off. And when I find out years later they're doing well, they're plugged in, it gives me great encouragement that we got to, I got to play, that we as a church got to play a small role in their lives, equipping them for, for their life in, 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 our, in God. And so this week I reached out to a heap of people and said, hey, how are you going? You've left Cairns. Where are you? And are you serving God? And I made it into a video to encourage you all. So let's watch some of our church people who were sent away prayerfully. I'm serving the Lord here in Huonville. Hey guys, I'm serving God down in Brisbane. I really miss being part of Cairns Prezi. Hi church, I'm now living in Alice Springs and serving God here. Hi everybody, I'm living in Sydney and I'm continuing to serve God here. Hi church, this is Julie. I now reside in Kalgoorlie. However, in the background is beautiful Perth, if you can manage to see. I'm just visiting. Um, I attend the Kalgoorlie Baptist Church and I've started serving there in the form of taking a craft class and we meet every second Saturday from 1 o'clock through to 5 o'clock at their cafe and we started with five ladies and we've had four new ladies recently and new next weekend, next time, there'll be a, another one. So we have about 10 ladies come along learning to sew and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. See ya. Hi church family, I'm serving God in Brisbane. Hi everyone, I'm living for God in Brisbane. Hey Sam's Coast Church, it's Kate. Um, I'm serving God here in the beautiful Sunshine Coast. Um, I miss you guys, I hope you guys are doing well. Hi everyone, um, I'm currently living in Mianjin land, which is uh, the indigenous word for Brisbane. Um, I just wanted to plug this book, uh, it's called The Jesus I Never Knew, and it's been super encouraging to me in just helping me to rediscover the man of Jesus. Who is this guy that we've been following for thousands and thousands of years? And what does it actually look like to have uh, a personal relationship with him? So it's been super encouraging and helpful just to, to kind of rediscover who he is. So highly, uh, highly recommend it. Hey everyone, Lewis Chanel and Evie here. We're now living for God in Toowoomba. Hi church family, we're serving God in Gladstone, Queensland. Hi church, we're serving God in Melbourne. Hi church, we're serving God in Brisbane. Hey church, um, Bianca here. I'm now living and serving God in Dolby. And 
something that has been encouraging me is that no matter where we go, God is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hi Church, it's Kelly here. I am serving God here on the Gold Coast and have landed at an amazing gospel-centered church called Liberty. Hi Church, I'm now living for God in Sydney. Hi Church family, I'm serving God in Newcastle. Hi Church, I'm living for God in Brisbane. Hey Church family, I'm living in Brisbane and serving God here. God bless. Hi Church, my name's Jessica and I'm living with God here in Brisbane after leaving Cairns just over a year ago. Cairns Prez really built me up over the last few years and equipped me spiritually to really love others and serve God. Um, I'm really excited to be doing that here in Brisbane. I do miss all of you up there very much. Um, so lots of love and God bless. Hey guys, we're currently uh, serving the Lord in Brisbane. Hi everyone, I'm now living in Brisbane and serving God here. Miss you guys. Hi, this is Mary and I'm serving God in Sydney. I'm living for God in Sydney. Hey everyone, this is Tom and Alison. We're currently living in Brisbane. We're both serving at Kenmore Presbyterian Church. And all three of us are attending Bible College at QDC to be better equipped to serve. Let's pray. I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up. Dear Father, we thank you so much that you would bless us with all those people, that they would spend a time in our church family, uh, growing with us, encouraging us and us encouraging them. We thank you that you've cared for them in those transitions to wherever they are now, and they're plugged into churches and loving you and growing in you. Father, we could pray that uh, you would bless all those who have been part of our family, those in the video and all of them, all, all the others as well, maybe working in their hearts, building them up and, and building your kingdom through them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.